Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. My name is Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Catherine Tumber, the author of Small, Gritty, and Green, The Promise of America's Smaller Industrial Cities in a Low-Carbon World. Catherine Tumber, a journalist and historian, is the author of American Feminism and the Birth of New Age Spirituality, Searching for the Higher Self, 1875-1915. to She's a research affiliate in the Community of Innovators Lab in MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Catherine Tumber, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. So why did you get interested in this issue of smaller urban cities in the United States? I come from a smaller industrial city. I grew up in Syracuse, and I spent most of my life in uh, Rochester and Albany, New York, and I spent a good deal of time in Detroit. And over the course of my life, I watched these cities die. And they became unviable places for, for people to live. Um, and I knew that one day I would have to write about it. And so I, I did. Um, and I find that, to my surprise, when I, you know, I originally intended to, to write a lament and a history of this and how this happened. And to my surprise, I found that there were grounds for, for optimism and for some for hope. These cities had assets in agriculture and in manufacturing legacy, including skills, and they had a great deal to gain from curbing sprawl, that their, that their smaller scale made them, um, and the fact that they sit on such rich farmland, most of them, uh, they had a great deal to gain from from preventing the, the gobbling up of that farmland in the future. So the cities you're writing about, are they primarily what we might think of as the Rust Belt? Yes. And when I think of these cities, I think of like a lot of cities in Ohio, some of the smaller size cities that aren't necessarily hooked into what you might refer to as a mega region transportation system, or there isn't a grand urban plan behind them. They've just been kind of left to their own devices really for the last 30 years. I would say that it's even worse than that. I would say that they have been actively disinvested in. <laughs> Um, you know, all cities uh, were disinvested in after the, after the war, after uh, the Second World War. There was a real urban crisis by the 60s, and bigger cities tended to, to uh, get back on their feet again. Smaller cities um, really suffered disproportionately from the, the disinvestment that, was, that, that sprawl represented, suburbanization. And then on top of that, they, they were um, disinvested in by industry as, as we moved more and more toward a knowledge economy and a financialization of the economy with the development of, um, you know, the opening of free trade. Their manufacturing base was, was decimated. And you, if you go to any of these places, um, you'll see the evidence of that all around you in ways that people who live on the coasts can't possibly imagine. I mean, cities like Flint have lost something like 50% of their population, and you see the evidence of that all around you in, in you know, open land where bustling neighborhoods once stood. It's really quite shocking. These cities, if we think of them as social, political units, I mean, I get one of the things that, that you really seem to come through in this book is that, yes, there's been a lot of economic destruction in these cities, but as cultural areas and as, I guess, political units, you still see value in them. I mean, that you still see that there are 
there are seeds within them of renewal that people might not have thought of before. One of them I thought was really interesting was agriculture. I mean, it's it's kind of odd to think that you, when you think about these towns in the Rust Belt that in some ways, they're just little islands. They were little islands of intense industrial activity in what would have been a sea of agriculture. Can towns like uh, we'll talk, Flint, Michigan, or some of the towns in Indiana, any of these towns in the Midwest that at one point were had a lot of heavy industry, is it viable for them to go back to some degree of agriculture? And if so, what kind of agriculture would you be talking about? Well, first of all, I wanted to say that we're talking about cities, not towns. <laughs> well, what's what's the, what's the difference? So if somebody's listening to this, they say, okay, here's here's the here's where we're talking the demarcation between a city and a town. Um, well, I I'm looking at cities of between say forty thousand and, and four hundred thousand. These are not metropolises, but they are not towns either. They have you know they have density and they have the capacity for far, for much more than they than some of them have now with the with the loss of population in recent years but you know cities like I traveled to some 25 cities in the course of reporting this book and I'm I'm talking about places like Akron and Youngstown and Muncie Indiana Peoria Rockford Illinois Janesville Wisconsin these are cities <clears throat> and they have um, an urban feel to them. Um, they have, you know, have capacity for real vitality with people who are really committed to them as cities. So the culture is, um, you know, as is the case with other cities of all sizes, there's a great sort of suburban-urban divide. And one of the things that, that people who are trying, who are working, you know, doing yeoman's work, <laughs> trying to, uh, you know, revitalize and, and, uh, and um, bring and make economically viable the cities that they love face is resistance from um, the surrounding suburbs. But they also have a lot more to work with in many ways in terms of their natu- natural assets. Um, you mentioned agriculture. Um, these cities, by and large, sit on some of the richest farmland on Earth. And if that farmland was used to support agriculture again and to support a relocalized food system, it could, these places could really prosper and it could be an advantage to people who are interested in local food. So let's talk about the human capital. Uh, obviously, these towns from the turn of the 20th century, as it was, they were supporting industrial capacity. And in the last 30 years, as this industrial capacity and disinvestment has occurred, what's happened to the human capital? What's happened to these men and women who were trained to be some of the finest machinists and some of the finest industrial workers in the world? And now all of a sudden, it's 30 years later, uh, is their knowledge in danger of being lost, the things that they know? Um, yes, it is. Um, that... Those skills are still present, but the, the people who, who have them and have used them and developed them are beginning to die, and they're not being passed on to the next generation. It used to be that there, were, there was a, a well-developed, in all these places, um, a well-developed sort of educational um, institutional framework for passing that knowledge along in, um, through voc- vo- vocational of uh, VOTEC courses in high, in the high schools and in community colleges. And then um, people graduating from those programs could go into these smaller, you know, precision machine shops 
and um, put their skills to use and to develop them further, and then it could be it would be passed along to the next generation. And one of the interesting things that's happened is that the community colleges and the high schools are not offering these programs anymore. And one of the things that uh, needs to happen is this, that we need to, to preserve those skills and develop them for the future more high-tech manufacturing and also pay the workers well. <laughs> and that's an important part of it. So in this alteration from, we'll say, an old industrial economy to a new green industrial economy of the 21st century, um, right. where's, where's the energy going to come from for that? Is this, is this something the government needs to get into on a federal level, on a state level? Can this be driven primarily, I guess, through private industry and the needs of the economy within these areas? I guess I want to get a sense of as the as you envision these smaller cities moving forward in the 21st century. Uh, what is, I mean, what are the respective roles, in your opinion, of government and then private industry? Well, you know, I, I think the notion of a purely free market is a myth, um, and, it, and it always has been. Um, private enterprise has always benefited from public policy, beginning with the construction of the Erie Canal and going right on through um, the land policies that benefited the building of the railroads and the, um, the Gilded Age tycoons who prospered from them. <laughs> um, and it also and it goes, goes right up to, um, you know, post-war federal transportation policies um, that, that, uh, and housing policies that, that fueled suburban sprawl. And, by the way, fueled it in ways that was um, socially inequitable. Um, which is another whole area that I get into in, in my book. But in any case, um, no, I, I, I think that um, we've always had public-private partnerships to one degree or another. Federal and state policies have framed the, the, the terms historically. But in recent years, these policies have favored the financial and knowledge industries to the detriment of smaller industrial cities. And my book argues for the many ways that this can be turned around. These cities can do a lot to help themselves, but they can't do it alone in a policy vacuum. Finally, is there one program that if you wanted to point it out to somebody to say, here's a really good example of what I'm talking about and where I think the, these smaller cities can go, in for it, go forward in the future, where would you point somebody? Where, where, where's, what's a bright spot that you would say, here's, here's an organization or a group or a town or something out there that's getting it? I think that uh, Syracuse actually is doing a, a, a pretty good job of developing the, the um, a sense of being part of a regional economy that is that includes uh, the small cities of Utica and Ithaca um, and attracting interest in um, a, a green um, economy based on Syracuse's. Um, one of Syracuse's older industrial concerns, which was carrier air conditioning. They have taken that legacy and turned it into um, a whole economic policy development approach that is framed in terms of of, uh, developing green buildings and green building materials. And um, they've had some success. Um, in attracting new green industries. In fact, um, people had given up on Syracuse as a place where there would be any kind of auto manufacturing. 
and just recently, just in the past year, they, they attracted um, an Indian um, electric vehicle manufacturer, <laughs> partly based on their promotion of green economic development. Catherine Tumber, the author of Small, Gritty, and Green, The Promise of America's Small Industrial Cities in a Low-Carbon World. Thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you very much, Chris. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. You can also find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2011, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.